Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We are studying verses 5 to 15. We started that last week. I told you we wouldn't finish. I'm making no promises this week either. Uh, it says, let's read the passage first. So these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. In whatever city or village you enter, Inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city." I told you last week, this chapter is divided into three parts. The first section is what we just read, verses 5 to 15. It ends in verse 15 with the statement, truly I say to you. And that section, this section we're looking at, talks about the task of the missionary, the basic task of ministry. The second section encompasses verses 16 to 23 and ends with, truly I say to you. In verse 23, and that section talks about the reaction to the one who's been sent, the reaction to ministry. The third section includes verses 24 to 42, and again it ends in verse 42 with that same phrase, truly I say to you. That section talks about the cost of to the one being sent, uh, the cost of the ministry. So we're going to learn as we go through this chapter about the task, the reaction, and the cost of being a disciple sent in the name of Jesus Christ. What we see in verses 5 to 15 as we look at the task of the ministry are eight effective principles for missionary work. And when I say missionary work, please do not misunderstand me to mean that these only apply to those who we think of as vocational missionaries who go out to some place uh, to evangelize souls and plant churches. Uh, we're all the Lord's missionaries. If you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you are one of his missionaries and you've been commanded to go into all the world and make disciples. And if you're going to go out representing the Lord and do his work, it's essential you understand these principles. Uh, and there are eight of them, eight principles for effective ministry. They are one, a divine commission, two, a central objective, three, a clear message, four, confirming credentials, five, confident faith, six, uh, settled contentment, Seven, a concentration on those who are receptive. And eight, a rejection of those who are contemptuous. Now last week we looked at a divine commission. Look there at the beginning of verse 5. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Notice they didn't volunteer. Although they were willing to go, they were sovereignly called, commissioned, and sent out by Jesus. One of the import most important things to know in ministry is to recognize that God has sent you. So you want to be sure you're sent before you go. In, in terms of the normal Christian who is not going into vocational Christian service, it's important to realize 
and to understand that you have a divine commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, every believer has that commission. Uh, but there are also those to whom God has given a divine commission to serve him as pastors, missionaries, church planners, and the like. And before they go, they must know that God has, sent his, has set his hand on them and commissioned them to go as his representatives to serve in those capacities. As I told you before, I've been asked through the years by young men who aspire to the office of elder, how did you know you were called to the ministry? My answer consists of three things. First, a strong desire. Secondly, the confirmation of the church. He, uh, the person must have the ability <clears throat> to communicate the truths of God's word in a way that is clear and understandable and applicable by others. And his life must reflect that he meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So you have to have the confirmation of the church. And finally, there's the ministry, uh, that there's opportunity for ministry. Uh, God will open a clear door of service, but it will always be by his timing, not by the timing of the man who has the desire. Now notice that it says he not only sent them, but he instructed them. The word means to command, to give orders. It was primarily a military term used of a military commander giving orders to his subordinates. So the word included the idea of binding a person to make the proper response to a command or instruction. So we are servants under divine commission, and that's binding on us. We are bound to fulfill that commission before God. Secondly, we looked last week at the second principle, which is a clear objective. Look at the last part of verse 5 and verse 6. It says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, in other words, at this particular time, at that particular time, they were to proclaim the message of salvation to Jews only. They were not to go to non-Jewish people. Now understand, this is not a permanent command. Very narrow dispensational statement. A very narrow statement that is limited to this time and place in the plan of God. God cares for Gentiles. In Matthew 8, 11, he says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jesus made it abundantly clear that he will reach Gentiles. What about the Samaritans? Did he have something against the Samaritans? Well, no. In fact, the first woman that Jesus ever told that he was the Messiah was a Samaritan woman at the well. So then God, if God loves Gentiles and Samaritans, why did Jesus tell the disciples not to go anywhere near them when he sent them out on their first missionary journey? Well, I gave you three reasons. First, the Jews held a special place. They hold a special place in God's plan. They're his chosen people and the ones to whom the law, the covenants, and the promises have been given. Secondly, the, the 12 had a problem themselves. They were hardly up to the task of reaching their own people, much less trying to go deal with the Gentiles who and the Samaritans whose cultures they didn't really understand and who they themselves hated with a passion. Uh, so they weren't equipped for that. And third and less important, I think they were sent out only to the Jews because they needed a specific point of attack. You have to have specifics. And so Jesus gives them a specific target. One of the things that frustrates people in the ministry is they often don't have a clear objective. If you don't have a clear objective, you can be easily diverted into areas that take away from your ability to do what you were there to do. 
Uh, part of an effective ministry is to have a clear objective. Know your gifts. Understand what God has equipped you to do. Know the needs and callings and opportunities and desires of your heart. And then find a track and run in that track. As I told you, I, I know what God has called me to do. He's gifted me in the areas of teaching and administration. So that's where I focus my time. And I focus on expository teaching. I occasionally teach topically, but generally I prefer to look at the text, study the text, and explain the text. I'm convinced that's the best way to, for you to learn what the Bible has to say. Um, and so that's the focus of my teaching. And the idea is to focus on the central objective. Jesus said he did the works which the Father had given him to accomplish. And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He was very narrowly focused and had a narrow perspective, a narrow objective. And that's an effective ministry. Do one thing and do it well. So the first element of an effective ministry is to have a divine commission. The second is to have a central objective. That brings us to where we stopped last time, which is the third component of an effective ministry, which is a clear message, a clear message. Look at verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Many people fail to understand and believe the gospel because they have never heard it clearly presented. The state of American Christianity is so confused and befuddled about the gospel that the world around us has absolutely no idea what it actually is. Our message is anything but clear. And part of the problem is that we don't stick with the central message. We clutter it up with a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, what happens when somebody starts talking about to us about what we believe? They'll ask us, well, what is your religion? Or what church do you go to? And you answer, and then they'll say, well, what denomination is that a part of? Are you a Baptist, a Catholic, a charismatic, evangelical? What are you? And instead of telling them that we are a follower of Jesus Christ and then going into a clear, simple gospel presentation, we divert off into trying to answer all their questions and explain what a non-denominational evangelical church is as compared to the Roman Catholic Church or the Baptist Church that they might know a little bit about because they attended a vacation Bible school there a few times when they were in elementary school. Uh, and we end up adding a bunch of secondary matters and human interpretations to the conversation that had, do absolutely nothing but confuse the issue. The message Jesus gave the apostles to preach was simply stated, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Message was very clear. It wasn't psychology. It wasn't philosophy. It wasn't human wisdom. It wasn't politics or economics. The message was the kingdom of heaven and its eminence. You say, well, where's the rest of all of all that they were supposed to say. Is that all? Well, obviously they were to elaborate and explain what that meant, but the basic truth is unmistakable. When you open your mouth, make sure you talk about God's projects, not yours. Uh, preach the kingdom, the rule and reign of God, and that God's kingdom will come to earth. In scripture, the kingdom of heaven is seen three ways. First, it's seen in conversion when a person enters the sovereign rule of God by trusting in Christ for salvation. Second, it's seen in consecration as believers live out the divine principles of God's revelation by obedience to his word. 
Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom of heaven is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And third, the kingdom will be seen in its glorious millennial form when Christ returns to earth to establish and rule it in person and then sets up his eternal kingdom. But until that time, we preach the central message <coughs> of the kingdom, which is about the king. Uh, by definition, a kingdom is a domain ruled by a sovereign king. But the essence of the kingdom is not a geographical area, but the actual ruling of the king, the administration of his will over the citizens of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is the domain of the, God's lordship, where he rules by his divine will. All of Jesus' teachings, from his public instruction to the twelve Disciples at the Lord's Supper uh, and for 40 days after his resurrection was always about teaching the truths and principles of life in God's kingdom. And it can get confusing for people when they listen to preachers. Uh, I mean, after all, no one has a clue what your message is until they hear you, right? Uh, because all kinds of preachers preach all kinds of stuff. Uh, there is such a disparity, it's often impossible to figure out what the real message is. If you listen to some preachers, they will tell you the gospel is about serving your fellow man by feeding them, clothing them, and housing them. Uh, and as nice as those things are, folks, that's not the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, in fact, when you present a social welfare gospel like that, you're proclaiming a gospel that says heaven is earned by doing nice works for other people. Uh, you must get to the point of telling people about the King, Jesus Christ, who came and died for sinners like them, and that by repentance from faith, for, uh, repentance from sin and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, they can have peace with God and eternal life in heaven. And unless you tell them that, you haven't presented the gospel. Uh, folks, I don't deny that the gospel of the kingdom has many practical ramifications, both personal and social. Much great social work has been accomplished throughout history in the name of Jesus Christ. Orphanages, colleges, and universities, medical hospitals, uh, and the like have all been established as a way to help orphans, the poor, the uneducated, and the sick. Scripture tells us not to neglect widows, orphans, and aliens. Uh, but the central message of those ministries to those they help must be the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, that King Jesus is the sovereign Lord and Savior. If all they do is provide help to the needy but not the gospel, they miss the point. Uh, until that central message of God's sovereign provision for man's salvation is clearly understood, accepted, and obeyed, trying to apply it to any other area of life is both disobedient to Christ's command and it is futile. The gospel transforms society only as it transforms individuals. Well, Jesus moves on in his instructions to the disciples and he continues to give them elements that will make their ministry effective. And so we come to the fourth component, which is confirming credentials. Confirming credentials, verse 8. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. 
those who represent Christ, and this is essential, must have a confirming credential. If you were to go out and preach Jesus Christ, <clears throat> what reason would people have to believe anything that you said was really from God? Why should they believe that? Why should they believe the 12 when they went out and said the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Uh, and when they said the Messiah is here and it's none other than Jesus of Nazareth, and when they preached the principles of the king, perhaps repeating much of the Sermon on the Mount, why would people want to believe that? What were the credentials that they had? And it was because they had credentials that that was confirming that what they said was true. If you go to an orthopedic surgeon because your knee hurts all the time, and he gives you a diagnosis and says you need a knee replacement, why do you believe that? Well, because he's a doctor. He's got his credentials hanging there on the wall. Uh, say he graduated from an accredited medical school somewhere and performed a residency and a fellowship. He knows his stuff. Those are his credentials. If you're going to hire a man to renovate your kitchen, and some guy comes in, you expect to find out that he is a licensed general contractor who holds all the certificates that are necessary for him to do that kind of work. He has the required credentials. But what do you do with a guy who's preaching the coming, coming kingdom when he hasn't been to any of the approved rabbinical schools of his day? Uh, how do you know he's teaching the truth? Uh, in fact, these guys were the very opposite of the existing religious establishment. They had no education. They were from Galilee, not Jerusalem. They didn't belong to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the Essenes. So what was the reason to believe them? There wasn't any New Testament at that time that you could use to compare what they said. No one had a, written down a copy of the Sermon on the Mount that they could pass out as a gospel tract. Uh, so why believe them? Because they had credentials. That's why. Verse 8 lists those credentials. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Now, those are the credentials of the apostles. And those credentials were the key to marking them out as representatives of God. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is defending his apostleship to the Corinthians. And he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Those were the signs of a true apostle. Those signs and wonders and miracles pointed to God as the source. They were the proof of apostleship. That's the way it was with Jesus. In, in John 9, the blind man said to the Pharisees who questioned him, You guys claim you don't know who he is, and yet he opened my eyes. You say you don't know where he came from, and yet I've been blind since birth. And he made me see. I find it very interesting because it's pretty obvious to me. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, so he can't be a sinner. Therefore, he must have come from God. So the disciples' ability to do these things pointed them out as being representatives of God. But now listen carefully. These miracles were not designed simply to demonstrate supernatural power. If that was all Jesus wanted them to do, he could have given them the ability to disappear and reappear, uh, to move around the temple from one place to another, to fly around in the sky, things like that. But no, the type of miracles Jesus gave them authority to do 
were all designed to demonstrate the character of God and the nature of his kingdom. Look at these credentials here. Heal the sick and cleanse the lepers. I'll come back to raise the dead in a few minutes. Listen, not only did they heal the sick and cleanse the lepers for the sake of the miracle, but those miracles, those actions, show that God is indeed a God of compassion and mercy to those in need. It didn't have to be like that. As I said, they could have done all kinds of astounding, miraculous tricks that didn't make anybody better. But they were revealed, these, these miracles revealed the great heart of God. And God cares for people who are hurting and suffering. Those miracles, these miracles demonstrated the mercy of God. It showed them that whatever the kingdom of heaven was, when it was at hand, sick people got well. Lepers lost their leprosy. In other words, it would be an element of the coming kingdom that God would remove disease. So they got a little foretaste of what the kingdom was all about. And so it was, that was the first credential. It was compassion and mercy for people who suffer. Jesus always had a great concern for the poor. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison, and he was depressed and despondent and began to wonder if Jesus was really the Messiah. And so he sent messengers to Jesus asking, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered, said to him, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why telling that? Because that will reveal that he is God's Messiah. Because he shows, it shows the compassionate, merciful heart of God. You see, the disciples' miracles weren't just tricks or miracles for the sake of the spectacular and the supernatural. It was a miracle intended to show a true representation of, of the compassionate heart of God. Listen, the person who truly represents Jesus Christ gives himself to the poor, the hurting, the needy, and the downtrodden. Whenever I see some so-called Christian pastor or leader who claims to represent Jesus Christ, but the only people they ever hang around with are the rich and the famous, I wonder about that. And if you read some of what they write and say, they'll explain themselves by saying things like, well, by getting to know those who are rich and wealthy, they give to my ministry and that advances the kingdom of God. Well, let me tell you, God doesn't need anybody's money to advance his kingdom. He already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, I strongly suspect that most of them hang around wealthy people in order to garner some of that wealth for themselves. I'm not denying that wealthy people need Christ too. There have been some very wealthy people whom God has sovereignly drawn to Christ, but they're far, they're few and far apart in the ministry. Uh, they're in the minority. It's harder to win them to Christ. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're usually worshiping the pursuit of money more than anything else. And when you surrender to Christ, he demands complete surrender of everything to his authority, including your money. But the characteristic of God and his true representatives is that they're drawn to the hurting, the sick, the poor, and the needy. That's the heart of God revealed. As you go through the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, uh, you continually find this principle. In Psalm 918, 
It says, for the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Psalm 12, 5 says, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Uh, Psalm 35, 10, all my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Psalm 140.12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Isaiah 41.17, the afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched from thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself as the God of Israel. I will not forsake them. By way of contrast, the scripture says that the world and its representatives have little compassion. We're told in Ezekiel 18.12 that the godless person oppresses the poor. Amos 2.6 says they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Habakkuk 3.14 it says they devour the, opposed in, the oppressed in secret. See, the world has little use for the afflicted. Uh, that's why problems like poverty and homelessness will never be solved until Christ returns. False prophets and false teachers are merciless. They're without compassion. They use and abuse people. They will promise the sickly, poor healing and blessings if they'll just give whatever little money they have to their ministry. Turn with me over to Mark 12, 38 to 40 for a moment. Mark 12. In this passage... Jesus indicted the scribes and Pharisees with a scathing indictment. Verse 38, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, in places of honor at banquets. But then listen to what he says next. Who devour widows' houses, and for the appearance sake offer long prayers. And he concludes by saying, these will receive greater condemnation. But look what happened right after he says that. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now, contrary to what you have, may have heard in about a dozen or more sermons and Sunday school lessons during your lifetime, this story is not about how you ought to give sacrificially to the Lord's work. This story is about the false religious leadership of Israel fleecing the people by telling them that the more they gave to God in the temple treasury, the greater God would bless them with physical abundance in their lives. In other words, they were the first health and wealth prosperity preachers. Uh, they didn't care about the people of Israel. In fact, they didn't even care about their own parents. Uh, if their parents were needy and asked them for money, they would say, well, I'd like to help you, Mom. I'd like to help you, Dad. But what I have is Corban. 
It's been dedicated to God, so I can't give it to you. That's the kind of people they were. And so they had a whole nation in the grip of a false, corrupt religious system that fleeced the flock out of as much as they could possibly get by telling them that the more they gave, the greater God would bless them. So all the wealthy are coming and dropping in large amounts of money to the treasury, seeking to gain God's blessing. And along comes this poor widow, and she throws in her last two coins, all that she has left. Why did she do that? Because her theology, as taught to her by her religious leaders, was that the more she gave, the more God would bless her. She was trying to buy God's blessing in her life. And so that's why Jesus says that these false religious leaders devour widows' houses. They don't care for the widows as they're commanded to do in the Old Testament. Instead, they take advantage of them by teaching them a false theology of health and wealth and don't care that the widows give away every last cent they have if it means that they, the religious leaders, will reap the benefit. And there are false teachers today who will claim to be working in Jesus' name, and all they want is money. And they'll take it from poor widows, even if it's their last two coins. They have no fault for the needy. But those who truly represent our Lord are sympathetic and tender. They're drawn to the sick and the poor. What are our credentials? What's our credential? Well, we can't heal the sick. We can't cleanse the lepers. We're not living in the apostolic era. But we can show the compassion of God that was meant by that is meant to be demonstrated through those things. Perhaps we can get them to a doctor or urgent, urgent care center and pay for it if we can. Uh, if you're a medical professional, you can provide care for them. John D'Amico, who's a member of our church and a physician's assistant at Morton Plan ER, regularly goes on missions trips to West Africa with SOS where he's called Dr. John and uh, he spends his time treating people with all kinds of illnesses and while he's doing that other team members are sharing the gospel with those who come for treatment and so those are our credentials to show compassion and concern for those who are sick and if possible to provide care for them that demonstrates the compassion and mercy of God to them there's another credential that the disciples had and that was to raise the dead and cast out demons. Now you might wonder why I combined those two as a single credential. Because both have to do with using God's power to invade the kingdom of darkness and overcome that kingdom. Now none of us can go around raising the dead or casting out demons. Contrary to the rituals that the Roman Catholic Church and others claim that will overcome and ex exorcise uh, demons, those gifts of miraculous power were restricted to the apostles. And no one today has the power and authority that Jesus gave to his apostles to do such. But though it is shown in less dramatic and physically awesome ways, the mark of divine power still validates the work of those God sends out to do his will. The ministry of the true servant of Christ is characterized by God's power in redeeming lives giving divine spiritual understanding and bringing spiritual growth uh, through the faithful witness of even the least gifted believer. 
The gospel has unleashed power to raise the spiritually dead to life and to shatter the work of demons and of Satan himself. You see, you can tell a false prophet, Mark 7, 16 says, simply by their fruits. You don't see any changed lives. You don't see any dramatic spiritual transformations. You don't see the result of their ministry being the shattering of the kingdom of darkness. You don't see someone who's spiritually dead come to life in Christ. But when you see the one who really represents God, you're going to see power. It's not the power to raise the physically dead, but it's the power to raise the spiritually dead through the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see people redeemed. It's the power to shatter demons' control over people's lives as their souls are released into the kingdom of God. Effective missionaries and effective representatives of Christ have power, and they raise the spiritually dead, and they shatter the kingdom of darkness with a message of light. That's their credential. And if you're going to go out and represent Jesus Christ and be believed, you better have some credentials, compassion, and a message of God's power to save souls. The third credential is found at the end of verse 8. It says, freely you receive, freely give. What was it they had freely received and which in turn they were to freely give? Well, the supernatural abilities to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons, of course. They didn't have those abilities on their own. Jesus had freely given them to the disciples. They didn't earn that power. They didn't get it by going to some rabbinical school or the Galilee Bible Institute or anything like that. They got that power from Jesus. So should they charge people to do these things? Absolutely not. They were to be unselfish in the exercise of those gifts and to exercise them without charge. So the third credential of the servant of the Lord is unselfishness. That is selfless service. You show me a person <clears throat> who truly represents Jesus Christ, and I'll show you someone who's not in it for anything that he can gain. There were Jewish exorcists who were in existence among the Jews in Jesus' day, and they went around supposedly casting out demons, but they charged people for those services. And people paid great sums of money to them, even though they had absolutely no effect whatsoever. And there were medical doctors in that period of time who, even though their medical science was very primitive, would charge people great sums of money to get physically healed. Doctors today do the same thing, of course, but hopefully medical science is greatly advanced so that it's much more effective than it was in Jesus' time. And now along come the 12 disciples. And understand this. They had the ability to instantaneously heal sick people, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, and even raise the dead. Can you imagine how much money they could have made? They could have become the wealthiest men in the entire Jewish culture. Simon Magus understood that. In Acts 8, when he saw the power the apostles had, he tried to buy it. And he was willing to pay any price because he knew he could make it back a thousand times over. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. You see, you can't buy the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a free gift. 
And so Jesus says, you received it free of charge. You give it free of charge. Don't ever charge anyone for your ministry. Don't ever put a price on your ministry or your power. That was the true law of the rabbis. <clears throat> a rabbi was bound by the law to give his teaching free and for nothing. The rabbi was forbidden to take money for teaching the law which Moses had freely received from God. The Talmud said that the only time a rabbi could ever take money for his teaching was if he taught a small child because that was the responsibility of the parents. And if they were shirking their responsibility in favor of having the rabbi do it, they needed to pay him for it because it was their job. But the Mishnah said that the rabbi was never to take money for his teaching any more than a judge was to take money for his decisions in court or a witness was to take money for his testimony in court. <clears throat> that would be bribery. Rabbi Zedek wrote, quote, Make not the law a crown wherewith to aggrandize thyself or a spade wherewith to dig, end quote. Rabbi Hillel said, He who makes a worldly use of the crown of the law shall waste away. Hence thou mayest infer that whosoever desires a profit for himself from the words of the law is helping his own destruction. In other words, no God-honoring rabbi put a price on his ministry or his teaching. But false teachers were always, are always interested in their own personal enrichment. They're always in it for their own gain. There's always a price for their service. You can always... Find someone who claims to represent Christ, but he puts a price on his service. And I'll show you someone who's done, who does that has just priced himself out of blessing from God. Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God, but not for sordid gain. Paul told Timothy that an elder is to be free from the love of money. Paul left Titus on Crete to appoint elders in every city who were not fond of sordid gain. Now that wasn't anything new. Uh, let's look back at Isaiah 56, 9 to 11. Isaiah 56, 9 to 11, all the way back then. Some 735, 740 years before Christ. The prophet wrote, All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. And he's saying there's going to be judgment. People are going to be killed and the animals will eat them. His watchmen, that is the people who were supposed to be guarding Israel, are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs unable to bark. In other words, they can't warn people of the danger. Uh, dreamers laying, lying down who love to slumber. They don't want to be bothered or awaken to action. And the dogs are greedy. They're not satisfied. They want more and more for themselves. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, to each, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. God says through Isaiah, none of them are serving me. They're just serving themselves for unjust gain, every single one of them. What an indictment. So if you're going to serve the Lord for gain and put a price on your ministry, you just priced yourself out of blessing. Through the years when I performed weddings or funerals for people, both for folks in this church and for family members of some of my deceased law enforcement co-workers, I've been asked many times, well, how much do you charge? Or how, how much should I give you as an honorarium? And I don't have an answer for that question. 
I have never set a price on anything that I ever did, and I never would. That doesn't mean I will necessarily turn it down. After all, a worker's worthy of his wages. I do recall a few times when I adamantly refused an honorarium because the individual is either a family member or a very close friend. But I've never told anyone that they must give me a certain amount of money or if they even have to give me anything at all. Uh, the Bible says I received it freely, and so I'm to give it freely. Why should I set a price? Uh, now, does this mean that we shouldn't pay our pastors? That we should just expect them to get by on whatever someone wants to give them? No, it doesn't mean that. Uh, and that brings us to the next mark of an effective minister of Jesus Christ, an effective minister, missionary or pastor representative of our Lord, and that is a confident faith. Let me see. Well, there's no way. Better, better to stop than to start a whole long point and not be able to finish it. Um, so before we we uh, close, any comments or questions? Anybody willing to admit that you thought the story of the the widow with throwing her last two coins in the treasury was all about sacrificial giving? <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not original with me, believe me. Not original with me. Regarding the widow, uh, I've always read that as he's criticizing the system, but he's not criticizing the widow. No, he went, he, he's just saying she's an example of what you guys have done. You devour widows' houses, and here's the perfect example. She's throwing her last two cents in because she thinks she's going to get blessing as I recall, from it. That story is all four it is. It's in, in there. Luke makes it. Luke even just says, he, he says these things, you devour widows' houses, and then it says immediately. So, so it's, it's clearly tied together. Okay? I had also read about that, that she was required by their teachings to give certain amounts oh, of money. Oh, everybody so, was required to so give so much. Yeah. Yeah, she's required. To, everybody's required to give so much. And uh, but there were exceptions in the law for widows and orphans. And they didn't do that. They just let you know, they're devouring widows houses. Anything else? Richard. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Let's close with prayer and be dismissed.